Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for these words. We're so thankful for Jesus who makes it possible for us to be one, to be united, and to be whole. And so God, I pray that um, as we go through this section of Ephesians together, that you open up our hearts and minds to follow you fully, to follow Jesus, and having that be our point of no return, God. Have our eyes focused so on Jesus that nothing else seems to be as important, God, and that when we focus on Jesus, we unite naturally and organically. I pray all of this in that powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm not sure about you, but for me, I've noticed that different people have different walks, so to speak, right? Um, you can notice maybe a friend or a family member walking really far from a distance, and I'm pretty much legally blind, so if I'm not wearing my glasses or contacts, I wouldn't be able to tell the person, probably even in the front row, but if they were walking, I could maybe tell you who they were by their stride, right? Maybe they shuffle their feet a certain way or stomp a little bit too loud, like the people who live above me in my apartment complex. You know, just I could tell those people by their walk pretty easily. Um, or maybe it's the way they carry their shoulders or swing their arms a little bit when they're walking. But in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul urges the church to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which they were called. I believe that 
His words um, to the church of Ephesus are timeless. They're not just for the Ephesians, but they're also for us today, and they're just as meaningful. And when you thought we were getting away from Paul, right? We just got done talking about Romans for uh, quite a few months, uh, and then we took a little break. We're right back into Paul with Ephesians, right? He hits us again and sneaks in with his letter to the church of Ephesus. It's pretty obvious that Paul isn't talking about our style of walk and how we move our feet back and forth to get from one place to another. But rather, he's talking about the way that we live our lives day by day, moment by moment, that kind of walk. Paul is considering that we should maybe live our lives with a label on us, right? A style of walk, a label that's kind of slapped onto us, that we walk with a label every single day, that that's not something that we can put on for one moment and take off for another. See, I'm a part of the don't label me generation, right? How many other millennials in the house, right? Don't label me. But that seems to pick up more labels because we don't want to be labeled, and so we're like the most labeled generation even though we don't like labels, and it's really confusing and super horrible if you're a millennial. But as a group, not to broadly generalize us, but millennials don't like to be told what to do, right? Yeah. You know, just by saying that, you're like, I don't want to respond to you right now. We don't like to be told what to do or how to live, right? We kind of reject categories that push us into a box or give us some kind of label or distinction, right? We want to be known by our original, unique selves. For instance, corporations that used to market to the masses are now having so much difficulty because of these millennials, right, to get more sales for this generation that wants individualized attention, right? You can't just market to me as a broad group. You have to market to me individually. We want individualized products, right? I once saw this ad on Instagram, and it was for personalized shampoo, right? Because you don't want just the run-of-the-mill shampoo. You want your personalized shampoo with the right blend of essential oils that's just for you. We want individual, individual, individual. We don't want to be labeled that goes along with a group of people. But it's true because labels have some negative things, right? Labels can be hurtful, labels can be harmful, and labels can be hostile. Labels like, you're a failure, you're a loser, slut, nobody, weird, except for, I guess, in our tribe of Seventh-day Adventism, we take weird kind of as like a compliment, so that, that label's a positive one here in this room. Um, but labels can also be uplifting and uniting. Labels such as smart, achiever, confident, maybe even follower of Jesus. We traditionally don't enjoy labels that isolate us or move us to a place of feeling less than. But we absolutely love to be labeled when it uplifts us or compliments us or puts us in a place of admiration and recognition, right? Labels can become more intense when a specific name is tied to them. When you call yourself an American, a Canadian, a Mexican, a Swiss, an Indonesian citizen, it carries big weight with it. 
I remember um, I went to Switzerland to visit my family right after we entered into that war with Iraq. Um, and at that time, being an American wasn't super popular over in Europe. Um, I know it's hard to imagine um, anybody would look down on us Americans. But it does happen um, in many parts of the world, and it was my first eye-opening experience. You know, I went to school where I learned the Pledge of Allegiance, and I thought that we were the only free country, and then my mind was blown to find out that's not necessarily true. Um, I was told, it was in a joking manner, but I was told when I was over there that um, I should just rip out my passport photo and my American passport um, and eat it to remove all evidence that I was an American citizen. Um, our labels can carry weight, they can carry baggage, whether it's good or bad. So what does it mean to have the label of a follower of Jesus, right? For some, there's weight, there's strength in that name to be labeled a follower of Jesus. But for others, there's baggage and there's pain. Unfortunately, many people have used this name of Jesus to do horrible and gruesome acts. People have used the name of Jesus to steal and to manipulate. People have used the name of Jesus to include themselves and to exclude others. It's unfortunate because the actions of few can sometimes infest the whole name of a group. Um, a while back for our honeymoon, Kiefer and I went to Portland, right? And if you're a Portlander, that holds some weight into it, right? And so Portlanders are known to be a little bit eccentric and weird in a good way, right? Their slogan is keep Portland weird, and they sure do, I promise you. Um, they're known for keeping the 90s going strong and how they dress and their style, right? They have their nice MacBook Pros, but they also use a flip phone, you know? So they're keeping it cool. But just a few people define that whole group. Not everyone in Portland wants to keep it weird and funky, right? A lot of them are normal um, or, you know, our definition of normal. But what does it mean to be this authentic follower of Jesus, right? Do we let it be defined by a few, or do we let it be defined by our whole group? The thing is, if we genuinely follow him, how we act as individuals and as a group reflects who he is. So I'm going to say it one more time. If we say we are followers of Jesus, and we really do mean it, and we do live it, how we act, how we treat people, the way we speak, needs to reflect who he is. Remember last week um, when we talked about the fig trees, right? And I mentioned that if a fig tree has leaves, that means it should have fruit because they grow simultaneously. So if you just have leaves but no fruit, you're kind of a bum tree, right? No one really is going to utilize you. You're not really necessary. You can't say you follow Jesus and have the leaves without living it out, without having some fruit, without putting your weight into it and acting like Jesus would act and speaking like Jesus would speak. Paul goes on to share that when we follow Jesus, when we live our lives according to that calling, we see that Jesus beckons us to a life of fullness. He beckons us to a life that we can live more abundantly and more fully. We're called to work as a team. 
right? And that sounds kind of scary because individual, 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 the team. The term Christian encapsulates the idea of togetherness and of teamwork. The term Christian bears the mark of unity as Paul highlights in this section of Ephesians. But unfortunately for many, unity has become a trigger word in the past couple of weeks. Funny how we're talking about it today. Some of you might recall a video that was released by um, some people in our tribe following some really big decisions at um, our worldwide church's year-end meetings that call for a unified church. And you probably heard the word unity, unity, unity echoed off, and family, family, family echoed off. And it's now become something, this word unity doesn't carry weight, but it rather carries baggage, right? There's a problem with unity when it's used as a manipulation tool. There's a problem with unity when it's not organic, and media is the tool that we use to try and make it work. If Jesus draws all men to him, and if we follow Jesus fully, we shouldn't be forcing the conscience of another one of our brothers and sisters. So we're gonna talk more about what positive unity looks like as we dive deeper into the scripture. But for now, we are reminded that unity is of the spirit, as Paul puts it. In the bond of peace, he says. We are told unity is one body, it is one spirit, it is one Lord, it is one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. One. Um, I'm gonna actually ask you guys to pull out your Bibles now, and instead of going to Ephesians, I want you guys to go to James chapter two in your pew Bibles, or on your phones, or the Bible that you brought with you. Um, and with the pew Bibles, feel free to highlight these, to mark them up, to write a little note, next to them, um, use them for anything that you need to. Little notes, little highlights. Um, the reason I wanna direct you to James chapter two is earlier this week, um, I got a group text from two of our college guys at Walla Walla. So they were just home for Thanksgiving, they're gonna be back home for Christmas. But I got a group text from Tommy Eichmann and Alex Fazio. And it went like this, Tommy messaged me and he said, Alex and I think there needs to be a sermon on James chapter two, dot, dot, dot. Mainly the first section, right? So I thought, okay. So I went um, and I looked up James chapter two just to refresh and I read it and I thought, wow, this actually, this is pretty good and it connects really well with what we're talking about um, this week. And so I read it over and I thought this is a perfect cross-reference for Ephesians chapter four. And so I replied saying, good idea, I'll weave it into this week's sermon on Ephesians. And then I got the best like youth pastor feeling because Alex texted back and he said, what a pro. I am a pro. Oh, yes. <laughs> so if you'll turn with me to James chapter two, we're gonna read verses one through 13 because they are so impactful. I want you to really get this idea of this scripture. Um, so I encourage you to highlight it um, in your pew Bible or on your, or on your app. Um, your pew Bibles are in the English Standard Version, and I'm going to be reading the Message Version because I just love how it takes what James says and it makes it really relevant um, to us today and it uses some more modern language. So James, the beginning of James chapter two, reads like this. My dear friends, 
Don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious Christ-originated faith. If, ma if a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and someone off of the street wearing rags comes in right after him and you say to the man in the suit, you sit here, you sit in the best seat in the house. Now I'm not really sure where the best seat in the house of the church is, I think they're all great, but let's say we had one really special seat and we said, you sit here and you ignore the other person who came in and said, you better sit in the back row, right? Haven't you um, segregated God's children by doing so and proved that you are judges who can't be trusted? Listen, dear friends, isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. And here you are abusing these same citizens. Isn't it the high and mighty that exploit you, who use the courts to rob you blind? Aren't they the ones who scorn the name Christian used in your baptisms? You do well when you complete the royal rule of the scriptures that say, love others as you love yourself. But if you play up these so-called important people, you go against the rule and stand convicted by it. You can't pick and choose these things, specializing in keeping one or two things of God's law and ignoring the others. The same God who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. If you commit adultery but go ahead and murder, do you think your non-adultery will cancel out your murder? No, you're a murderer, period. Talk and act like a person expecting to be judged by the rule that sets us free. For if you refuse to act kindly, you can hardly expect to be treated kindly. Kind mercy wins over harsh judgment every time. I want to take you with me on a quick little tangent about freedom, right? Notice the phrasing in James chapter 2, the rule that sets us free. Now wait, if you're thinking about rules, rules don't really give you freedom, instead they're supposed to limit your freedom, correct? Right? They're supposed to keep us from doing certain things. Rules in sports outline the appropriate and inappropriate um, conduct of players. Often, um, if they're not kept, penalties can be awarded for breaking the rules. Rules at school keep us safe, right kids? Yes, rules at school keep us safe. They guide our learning. They establish boundaries for treating one another well and keeping the peace, right? If there weren't rules at school, mm, it would be crazy. Or maybe for the adults out there, the rules of the road help us to avoid accidents and help us to move around our city in a kind of peaceful and orderly way. Um, if you live in Denver, it's not very orderly or peaceful but um, at least, you know, it helps. But maybe you're late, right? Maybe you were running late to church and you wanted to drive seven miles or 17 miles over the speed limit and you run a few red lights, right? Go ahead, but if you get caught breaking the rule, you're, you'll find yourself at a financial loss. Kiefer and I are finding this out the hard way because I have a red light ticket and he has various other ones. Um, and so for our insurance, um, that 
puts a little mark there and uh, it holds on for apparently three years. So we're hoping those are almost up. Um, but regardless of their intent, rules seem like they're imposing on our freedom. It's hard to think of a limit or, as a, or a rule as freedom. But what if, what if, especially in the postmodern West, we think of freedom in the wrong, the wrong way? Prior to the Enlightenment, for years, freedom, whether it was religious or secular, Buddhist or Christian, Hindu or whatever you might else think of, was thought of as freedom from, okay? Freedom from. For instance, collectively, society viewed the ability to have a strong self-discipline as freedom. Willpower, right? This idea of being able to power through. Freedom from gluttony, right? Freedom from being able to say no to eating that extra helping of cake. Freedom from laziness and the feelings of low self-worth and depression that come from doing nothing all day or watching Netflix all day for extended periods of time. I can attest. Freedom from adulterous thoughts and the damage that it can wreak on family and friends. Freedom from. Self-mastery, thought of as achieving a high level of freedom, is composed of two different components, self-control and self-discipline. I do not do the things that I want to do, but would be bad for me, right? That's self-control. So for example, I would like to eat one of those giant boxes of Ferrero Rocher chocolates all in one sitting, but I won't because it's bad for me. Um, I'm not gonna say I haven't done that before, but. <laughs> or I do the things that are good for me that I don't want to do. That's self-discipline. So for example, I don't really feel like going to the gym, but I'm gonna go at least three times a week because I know it's good for me. I know it's good for my body and my mind. In the postmodern West, however, we've begun to see a transformation in our thoughts on freedom, right? Freedom from has now become freedom to. So freedom from something is now freedom to do something. Rules don't set you free. The ability to do what you want, regardless of the consequences, is what makes you free. That's what we try and say is true freedom. Freedom to eat what you want and not be judged. Freedom to choose your gender sexuality, to have one partner or a string of partners. Freedom to express yourself through whatever means, regardless of how it affects others. Freedom to say what you want, be who you want, and pursue your own happiness despite everyone else around you. But this concept of freedom, this concept of I'm going to do what I want to do and it doesn't matter who else gets affected, doesn't actually create a unified culture or even a healthy society that treats each other with love and with respect. Instead, people are always out for number one, right? They're always out for number one, searching for happiness for themselves or their own immediate circle of friends and family. I'll either care for myself or I can be selfless and I'll care for, you know, my close, my close people. Fighting for their own agenda, whether it's political, religious, or even maybe cycling. Here in Boulder, we deal with quite a few cyclers. And if they were only out for their agenda and they just wanted to ride wherever they wanted to ride and I don't know that they're in the road, it could be a big problem, right? 
We need to remember our own limits. Self-control, self-discipline, self-mastery or willpower will only go so far though, right? You can not eat that chocolate as much as you want. You can go to the gym as much as you want and you can achieve this level of self-mastery, but it's still not enough. Because the thing is, we need spirit power. Treat yourself well, yes, but treat others well first. That's hard to do. Self-discipline, self-mastery, right? Self-control, but we're looking at others now. As followers of Jesus, we should be on the lookout for the betterment of others, even at our own expense. When we do that, we'll find that unity develops naturally. It's not forced, develops naturally. We find that the rules of Jesus actually do supply freedom. Not freedom to, but freedom from. Freedom from the pain, freedom from discord, freedom from strife and conflict that happen when we put ourselves first. We experience freedom from. So what was this golden rule that sums up the majority of the Bible according to Jesus? Doesn't he remind us to love each other as we love ourselves and to even love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? As I mentioned last week in the sermon, Kiefer and I got a puppy. She's super cute. I should have brought a photo for you guys to see. She's really adorable and super sweet. And so, like responsible puppy parents, we took her to the vet last Monday to get um, a round of shots. And so it's her second to last round of shots. We're super happy about that. Um, and she did great. I held her still, Kiefer fed her treats, and the doctor gave her a shot, and she was doing great. Um, she didn't even have a chance to swallow all her food before it was over. The whole evening, she was awesome, right? We went on a bunch of errands, and she sat on my lap on the drive home and just was super good. And we thought to ourselves, wow, like we've really nailed this dog owner thing. Like, I don't know what other people are talking about. Like our puppies, people are like, she's only three months and she's being so good. And we're like, yep, you know, it's just, we're pretty great at this. Um, <laughs> but then the next day rolled around um, and everything seemed fine until she didn't want to eat her dinner. And that's super weird because she is such a little piggy, like she will scarf down her food the second we put it down. Um, so we could tell she wasn't feeling super great. Um, and we let her come and sleep in bed with us for the first little half. And I just couldn't sleep because she seemed so miserable and I'm glad I couldn't because all of a sudden, sweet little Ami began to dry heave. Oh boy. <laughs> and so thankfully she didn't throw up, but Kiefer was ready. He had his hands cupped under her mouth because he knew like neither one of us wanted to wash our white duvet cover. Um, and so it wouldn't have been a good mixture, but he was ready, I was ready. Um, needless to say, we were up all night um, with her because she was just so sick. Kiefer felt kind of guilty because he was leaving for Union College the next morning, so he got to do all the cleaning and disinfecting that night. Um, and it was so horrible because come the next morning, Ami didn't improve. She was still sick, not eating or drinking anything. Um, so we called the vet's office, and they told us that we could come in um, later on that morning. And so I took her in, we were in the waiting room for a while, and so it took, you know, it took a little bit. The vet looked her over, took her temperature, checked out some of her fluids and whatnot, 
And the conclusion was that she probably had not so great reaction to the vaccination, as well as a bunch of stress from having to go to the vet. Um, so she gave me some probiotics to mix in with her food and a syringe to give her water, and she's starting to do a little bit better, which is great. Um, but when I, when I was at the vet, I was so nervous. Um, I thought it was going to be something more serious, that she had picked up some kind of disease because she wasn't completely vaccinated yet, and I didn't know what was happening. And Kiefer was driving to Union, freaking out, and I'm getting these texts, what's the word? My stomach is in nuts. Is she going to be okay? Will she survive? And you see, the thing is, before we got a dog, we had this conversation. And we said, how much would be, we be willing to spend if the dog needed like an emergency surgery, right? Or if like we needed to, like she got into an accident or she was sick, like what would it be, right? And so, um, and I grew up with a mom who would like lay down her own life for our pet, so I let Kiefer decide. So he picked a number, right? And we just left it at that. But that was before Ami got sick, right? And so when I called him driving home from the vet, he recanted everything he ever said about the amount that we would spend to save our sweet girl. Um, and this is for our dog, right? We love her, but this is for our dog. I can only imagine how people feel about their children. So maybe you have a dog or a kid and you can kind of relate to this. You would do anything to protect them and to keep them healthy and happy. And when I read these verses in James and Ephesians, it makes me think about how we treat others, how we're treating individuals despite what they wear, despite the amount of money in their bank account, despite what kind of connections they have, whether they're social or work-related. You get the picture. It made me think that the world might be a better place if we treated everyone the way we treated our pets. So how are we looking out for one another? Would, be, would we be willing to give up anything for the health and safety of another person? When we look to the life of Jesus, he didn't show any partiality to anyone who he met. He understood everyone was a part of this broken humanity and everyone in it was in need of his love, in need of his life, in need of his death, of his resurrection. We are all a part of something bigger than ourselves. In Ephesians, we read that every person has a part to play. I'll read from Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. He gave to them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It's a call to ministry for everyone every single one of us here. Much like businesses have a CEO and many employees, we are the same with Jesus as the CEO and us as employees. I've often said we, are, we wanna have like another pastor here, obviously, we would love to have dozens of pastors, but we could have 10 pastors here and still not be accomplishing all that we're capable of doing because it takes each and every one of us that is why we believe so completely in multi-generational worship here. Each generation, each individual has something to offer. No matter how small or young, big or old, no matter our gender, the color, of our, the color of our skin, the culture of our family, our diversity strengthens us to become whole. 
In his article from Ministry Today, Dr. Mark Rutland speaks on this definition of unity and how it doesn't always equate to our own definition. How in some instances, it seems like a juxtaposition. He says, in the kingdom of God, unity equals diversity. It is a part of the paradoxical nature of the kingdom that we find difficult to comprehend apart from a kingdom context. At face value, unity and diversity seem completely contradictory. Yet within the economy of God, they are more than compatible. They're synonymous. The image of God is more prominent when you take your place in the picture. We are each carriers of the image of God, and that means when we come together in the name of Jesus, that image is stronger than ever. We are called to build up the body of Christ. Paul states that the whole body is joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped with, and that when each part is working properly, the whole body can grow and build itself up in love. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves this difficult question. Has our collective body gone stiff? Are we experiencing some kind of spiritual arthritis? Are our emotions now limited? Newton's first law states that a body in motion stays in motion. Sitting at a desk all day versus going out and doing versus going out and living love. How you feel after sitting a while, right? You feel kind of like you need to stand or you just wanna keep sitting. Or have you ever kneeled down for too long and then you couldn't really get back up? That's been happening to me lately and it's awful. We weren't meant to stay in one position. Our bodies weren't meant to stay in one position. Our church body, the body of Christ is not a statue. It's a living, breathing and moving body of flesh and bones, ligaments and tendons. A unified body moves. The brain and the nerves speak to the body. So we need to listen to Jesus. The hand does not direct us and tell us what to do. The leg does not direct us and tell us what to do. The mouth doesn't even direct us and tell us what to do. The head does. Jesus does. We often get, up, get caught up thinking that unity means to look similar, to act similar, to even think similar. But unity doesn't always look like a single filed line. Unity doesn't always look uniformed. Unity doesn't always look like our definition of unity. To unify means to become whole. So what are we doing to make our church whole again? To combat our spiritual stiffness of our body and to loosen up our joints. To do that, we look to our words to remember in Ephesians 4.15 that says we grow in love. Or in another version, love makes us tell the truth. Regardless of the translation, we see the antidote to spiritual arthritis, to this body that has been sitting much too long. The solution is love in motion. We must encounter love in the form of Jesus and let it flow, overflow out of us. We must let it move us and drive us. We must let it saturate us and compel us to live love, not just sit love, but live love. We say it every week as we end our worship together to go out, to 
go and live, love, active, active verbs. This is not a reminder that you need to set in your phone or a reoccurring calendar appointment or something just to check off your to-do list. It's what happens naturally when you encounter the love of Jesus. When you have it flowing through your own life, it will overflow everywhere you go. Just as a body in motion stays in motion, a body living love stays living love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we feel, we feel the stiffness sometimes. We feel our bones ache and our muscles that are sore. But God, we ask you for the spirit power to exercise, to move, to strengthen our body, to become unified, to become whole, to have every single part of our body involved in living love in this world of hurt and of pain, God. Direct us, Jesus. Be the one to set off our neurons, to tell us where to move, where to go, what to say. Let it not be us, God, but let it be a collective us, not an individualistic us. Let it be us following your lead, and when we follow your lead, let us be unified.